Let me encourage you then to lift a Bible and follow with me in Ephesians chapter 4 from verse 20, which is our focus today. On the 23rd of August 2015, the Guardian newspaper ran an article that asked the following question. Were school days the happiest days of your life? The survey that accompanied the article suggested that just over half the people interviewed agreed that school days were the happiest days of their lives. Some of the journalists in the newspaper contributed by reflecting on their own experience of school life, including these folks. We've got uh, one from Michelle and also from Tim. I felt a bit of an outcast and I left in a fury at 16, says Michelle. Or Tim, I was a big fish in a small pool. The schoolboy is to be wondrous. You see, there were also those who spoke about the fear they had by being confronted by ferocious teachers who all seemed to be in their mid-fifties and every single one of them seemed to wear tweed jackets. But I wonder, does Stephen Moss' experience ring true for you? He said in that article, I haven't thought about my school days for years. And as I do so now, what mainly comes back are moments of fear. The time a thief planted someone's stolen watch in my pocket to try to frame me. The occasion I locked my swimming kit in the science lab and couldn't get to the pool in time. The time my class went to the theatre and someone put chewing gum in the hair of the girl sitting in the row in front of me. All these random injustices, he said, terrified me. I always was afraid that I would get the blame and I hated not being in control. I wonder if any of you would describe your school days as the happiest days or a nightmare. Of course, we have others who very proudly remind us that although far away from the formal structure of classes at school, they'll tell you, well, I attended the University of Life. Or, well, every day is a school day. And you know what? The Apostle Paul wouldn't disagree. Remember last week in Ephesians 4, we noted that those who give their minds over to meaningless things in chapter 4, verses 17 to 19, would end up living life in the darkness which resulted in a hardness of heart. Well, that is what Christians are saved from. Meaninglessness, hardness of hearts. But today as we read on, we see that Christians, what they're saved for, not just saved from, the meaningless way of life, but what they're saved for. And so, God by his Spirit has enrolled us in the school of Christ. The school of Christ. Ephesians 4 verses 20 to 24. Now, talk of sitting in the school of Christ might be a real turnoff for lots of people. The idea of teaching and learning sounds all a bit formal, maybe a little bit rigid for some of our liking. But I'm only emphasizing what Paul is stressing and only urging us to push on because that was the only way Jesus said his people would grow and the world would be reached and the church would fulfill her mission through teaching. For in the very last words of Jesus to his disciples in Matthew 28, 28 verses 18 to 20, he tells them, go, make disciples of all nations, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Teaching them. In other words, to become a disciple, you need to be taught. And if you are a disciple, you need to teach. It's a two-way thing. You are taught and you teach. In other words, education is not some side issue for the Christian few, but it's essential for the Christian all. 
If we fail to teach and learn from Christ and his commands, we failed. According to Jesus, disciples are made by teaching. Why? Because the very word disciple means a lifelong learner. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, you're a learner from Jesus. And in Ephesians 4, verse 20, through to chapter 5, verse 2, it reminds us that if we want to live meaningful lives in the light of God's truth, then we've got to enroll in the school of Christ. Do you see how Paul underscores this three times in these few verses? Verse 20, some of your versions will read, and this is the better translation, but that is not the way you learned Christ. Verse 21, we are to be taught in him. Verse 23, made new in the attitude of our minds. The difference between meaningful lives and meaningless lives is a battle for our minds. One writer puts it like this, conversion is a restructuring of a person's thinking by the Holy Spirit as a direct encounter with the love of God in the person of Christ. That is why Paul exposed us to this love of God in the person of Christ in these opening three chapters in Ephesians, wooing us, wowing us with the extent of this undeserved love, grace that leaves us gasping again and again at how wondrous it is, so that we're left asking all the time and every day, did he really do that for me? But how do I, as David Leach, an individual, now saved by God's grace, face the temptations that are unique to me? How do you as an individual in the family that you're part of or with the particular sins you struggle with or in the work environment that you're exposed to or the idolatry that's unique to your hearts now live as a Christian? How can my mind, your mind, my thinking, your thinking be reshaped to think and act and respond as a Christian? Well, it's by showing up regularly in the school of Christ. It's by learning from the Savior, because that's living with the Savior. I believe this to be a particular problem amongst Christian men in Northern Ireland. There is this feeling that so long as I am saved and have said the prayer, signed the card, all is good between me and God. There's this anti-intellectual feeling that the growing and knowing of the Christian life, oh, well, we'll leave that for the ministers who are all a bit weird and a bit effeminate anyway, or the ladies who, well, let them learn the touchy-feely ways of the faith. Let them get on with it. Yes, now, from time to time, granted, Christian men do like a bit of a pep talk because men like being spoken to that way. Be more manly. Lead more forcefully. Show your leadership more clearly. But folks, that's all just macho bravado. It's bluster which will only last for a while because it's all based on a guilt trip and not the gospel. What all of us need is not a pep talk, but we need to learn from Christ. Men and women, young people, we need to learn of Jesus. We need to let him be our teacher, our curriculum, our course, our guide. After all, he is a living person. He has risen from the grave. His spirit lives within us. So he can teach us personally and powerfully. So can we really change? The answer is yes. How? By learning from Christ. 
living with Christ as a daily companion as we are rooted and established in his love. Our Lord Jesus is not a life coach who is out there just shouting at our sides, push it on, you need to do better, you're not good enough at this, more of this, more of that. No, he's wanting us rather to wallow in the wonder of his love. That love that is so wide it draws us in and embraces us in our sin and shame. That love that is so long it lasts from eternity past to eternity future. That unbroken melody of love that is secured in Christ. So high that it lifts us from where we are right now and how we feel at this moment and lifts our eyes to see where we belong in the heavenly places unconditionally, eternally. So deep that we see Christ come down to earth as a baby in his mother's womb, lower still to be rejected in the rejected town of Nazareth, lower still as a condemned criminal on that cursed cross of crucifixion, lower still carrying the sin of the world on his shoulders, lower still facing the Father's wrath and the pain of hell and judgment, lower still as he's buried and dead in a borrowed tomb. Every day he wants us to sit in his school of salvation as we learn more of his humiliation, more of his condemnation, more of his crucifixion, more of his glorification. If you find yourself struggling, look to the cross, spend time in his word, and see what needs our Lord has already supplied. If you are sinning, look to the cross and look to his word and see the cost of Christ to deal with that same sin. And just as Jesus caught sight of Peter in that courtyard after he had denied him three times, Peter went out and wept bitterly. Do you remember that scene? It's in the presence of Christ and through the mighty power of his word that we see how sinful our sin really is. It's in this book, the Bible, in his school, in his classroom, through his spoken word, that he catches our eyes again. And that changes our hearts as we get another glimpse of our Savior and it recalibrates our mind. Baptist preacher C.H. Spurgeon in his typically Victorian language Put it beautifully like this. A sight of Christ will keep you from despondency and doubts and despair. A sight of Christ, how shall I stir you to it? It will fire you to duty. It will deliver you from temptation. It will, in fact, make you like him. A man is known by his company. And if you have become acquainted with Christ and know him, you will be sure to reflect his light. Friends, if we want to be spared a worthless life. We need to spend time in the school of Christ, learning from our wonderful, worthy Savior. And if we are pupils of Christ, well, it makes sense that then we, secondly, wear the appropriate school uniform. One of the most annoying signs I used to see when I was a teenager, always in big, bold writing, slap bang around the middle of the summer holidays in all the clothes shops, and outfitters in Belfast, three dreaded words, back to school. And as soon as my mum saw it, she said, oh, we must get you measured for a new blazer. And those trousers would hardly do you another year after the abuse you gave them playing football and scuffing them. And what state are your shoes in? And so there was a day, duly appointed, 
in the middle of the July heat when I'd walk around the gents' outfitters with the heaviest blazer and sweat it out as I longed to be outside and have to walk up and down the shop wearing the most uncomfortable shoes that I just need to be broken in. And just as I saw the light of the door and thought that my summer holidays could return to normal, instead of thinking about school, my mum would inevitably say, and how are you for shirts? Oh. Reality was, for every school, it has to be the right uniform. There are certain regulations. And of course, the appropriate colours. The blazer, the badge, the tie, the sports kit. Wear the wrong uniform, put on the wrong clothes into the watching world. There's confusion as to where you belong and what your identity is and who our teachers are. And that's the same when it comes to the school of Christ. We've got to wear the right uniform if our instructor, our teacher, is our saviour. Let's identify that for ourselves as we read in God's Word in Ephesians 4, verses 22 to 25. Let me read those words to us. You were taught with regard, you were taught, you see, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbor, for we are all members of one body. It's like taking off the summer clothes, the shorts, the t-shirt, the trainers, and putting on the uniform that identifies with the school that we belong in. If we are in the school of Christ, it changes how we live, how we dress. You see, as Christians in verse 24, we are wearing a new uniform that we call the righteousness of Christ. That simply means that the gift of God that he's given to us, that he lays upon us whenever we become Christians. Jesus takes our sin, we receive his righteousness. We're identified now as his. The theme of Ephesians 1 to 3 has all been about the fact we are now in Christ with a new people, a new identity. And let me give you one example of that. Ephesians 2 verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Verse 10 of that same chapter, we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works. Why is it parents always insisted on buying the bigger size in that school uniform binge in mid-January? Why was it that, you know, the blazer was hanging down here whenever it was the middle of July? You'll grow into it. This year you'll grow into it. And friends, at the minute, you know, the righteous of Christ is like a huge blazer that we don't feel worthy of, that we're identified with Christ. It's like it's hanging off us. It's too big. But Jesus says that's what holiness is. You'll grow into it. And it's the same in the school of Christ. This is the uniform, the style, the look that we're to grow into as Christians. We are not perfect in holiness like Christ in this world, but we are his, we're part of his school, we're one of his disciples, and so we are day by day growing into it. We're becoming more like Jesus. And as we come to Ephesians 4 verse 24, we're called there to be like God. And there are two main areas of concern for Paul as we dress 
as we put on his uniform each day, as we become more like God. Things that we must avoid, things that we must take off like the summer clothes and put on the uniform. And the first is this, false speech. False speech. It's there in verses 25 and 29. This isn't the first time the Bible has addressed the use of our words in in the Old Testament, in the book of Proverbs, chapter 12, verses 17 and 18. We read there, the words of the reckless pierce like swords, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. We see their wounds heal or destroy. The way we speak can make or break our witness for Christ. And here in Ephesians 4, it suggests that for a Christian to lie, for a Christian to bend the truth or be deceitful to each other, it's like stabbing the body of Christ in the heart. It's like attacking the vital organs of the rest. And that leads to a damaging, obviously, of relationships. The body, the body of Christ, lies erode trust. But how easy it is within the relationship that we hold dearest, if we've let ourselves down by doing something daft or making a huge error of judgment to make excuses, to cover the tracks, to shift the blame, we end up twisting our words to make us look better. Or as we disguise the harmful effects of our gossip, by putting a very holy spin on it and saying, you know, it's a matter for prayer. How much damage has been done in churches and small groups as one matter that was meant to be shared in private became public? Look at verse 29 in our Bibles. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. In the very helpful letter of James, later in our New Testament, we see the damage that this little member, the the, the tongue, this little organ of our body can can cause. James 3, go and read it later, reminds us that just as a rudder steers an ocean liner or a small spark can start a forest fire, so these tongues of ours can cause untold damage and shipwreck and devastation. It's described in James 3 as a restless evil full of deadly poison. And that is why we are called to be like God. For the word of God is always a positive, powerful thing in the Bible. Let me give you three quick examples of how we're to be like God and reflect him. Genesis chapter 1. God speaks in Genesis 1 and beautiful new things are created. Then throughout the Old Testament, God's word guide his people, keeping them in covenant, keeping his promises to them so they can live fruitful lives if they listen and obey. And then we have Jesus, the word of God, made flesh in John's gospel chapter 1. God's last word to the world was in the person of Jesus, the one who stepped out and stooped low and says by his life, speaking loud and clear through his sacrifice for sinners, this is who I am. This is my character live out. This is my word to you. Don't you hear me? The way I speak to you is an indication of the kind of God I am, the Bible tells us. My word is a word of creative, keeping, and saving power. Now, if we are to be like God with our words, here's the prime example of how we do it. This is our call. Do our words help create and build something beautiful with the person we're speaking to? Do our words keep promises 
and preserve and enable God's people? Do our words offer hope? Do our words offer salvation? There's a guide for how we speak to one another. Are we creative and keeping and healing with our words to be like God in the uniform we wear? And then we're also to remove fiery anger. Fiery anger. Verses 26 and 31 tell us a lot about the fiery anger. And in verse 31 in particular, we have this series of six rather unpleasant attitudes that we are to put away. Hope you've got your Bible open there and see these attitudes, these six attitudes. The first is bitterness. Well, what's bitterness? Well, it's that sourpuss attitude, isn't it? That grumpy, unhelpful, cynical kind of person. Rage and anger. Well, one is boom of someone who just explodes when they're wrong. Rage, boom. And the other, the anger that's described here is bubbling hostility. You you know, like when you fill a kettle, but you fill it way too full, and then the the boiling water simmers over, and, and, and it comes then pouring out. Maybe it's hidden away, this anger, for some time. Then, boom, it just comes out, and it scalds everyone around. There's boom, and there's bubble. And then there's brawling and slander. Well, these give us the twin set of those who shout and get noticed. The brawler who's a loudmouth and, hey, I want this and I want my feelings to be known. And then there's the slanderer, the behind-your-back sneak, who goes around killing reputations and whispering in the feeling, did you hear what she said to him? Or, he hasn't been near me for that. Or, are they avoiding you for... You've got the shouter and you've got the sneak. All summarized for us neatly with every form of malice. The silently harbored grudge, the indignant outburst, the seething rage, the public quarrel, the slanderous taunt. This dirty uniform of false speech and fiery anger has no place in God's school. All of these responses reflect an inner anger, something from within that comes out. But you might say to me, Dave, what if I do feel wronged? What if I have been forgotten about? What if we are simmering, ready to explode with someone, at someone, about someone? Verse 32 answers it for us beautifully. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. We replace the old uniform with this new identity, which characterizes the behavior of our God and his Christ towards us. We are to be kind to one another. And the word kind in Greek is the word krestos. And it appears in the same sentence with the word krestos. Krestos, krestos. Krestos means kindness. Krestos is Christ. How appropriate is that? Our lives are to be as kindly as Christ. And whilst forgiving one another is literally acting in grace to one another as God and Christ has acted towards us, yes, we are to be imitators of Christ. Look at the start of Ephesians 5, verses 1 and 2. Follow God's example as dearly loved children and live a life of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And there we have it. As we sit under Jesus' teaching, 
we come to learn of his sweet-smelling and soul-saving sacrifice for us. That image must fill our hearts and flood our minds. We are to wake up and smell his fragrant grace each day. Breathe it in. Breathe it in. And breathe it deep. You see, if ever there was someone whose anger and wrath should have poured out, it was God on us. But the pictures drawn for us here of this pattern of sacrifice describe how God has dealt with his own anger against us. We have violated his commands. We have let him down and we have left him out. But he responds in self-giving love toward us. Jesus dies in our place. That's how God deals with his righteous anger towards us. Not by blowing his top, not by simmering away or poking at us or hammering us, but in his own flesh and blood. He deals with his anger against sin in his own son. He acts in his own wrath and pours out his self-hatred against sin so that we might be restored to him. He does it for us. What we could never accomplish for ourselves, forgiveness before the red-hot wrath of God who hates sin. And it's in Christ we are safe from God in his holiness and righteousness. And so he calls us to be righteous. So let us not let the devil get a foothold. That's what verse 27 says. Nor grieve the Holy Spirit of God, verse 30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, who has already sealed us for the day of redemption. For when we open our mouths or let our tempers flare, we are called to remember that God by his Spirit lives within us. God lives in us. He is real. He is a person. And if we let loose with anger or our words, it breaks his heart. The heart of the spirit of the one who enabled us to see the beauty of Jesus. In other words, whenever we let rip with our mouths or simmer with anger in our hearts, we're saying to the gracious God who lives within us, do you mind leaving for a while? Christ's death means nothing to me. God's love doesn't matter to me. Let me get my revenge with the words I say and the things I do. But every spirit-filled believer wants to bring him pleasure and not pain. Eugene Peterson's The Message version of these verses is incredibly helpful. He puts it like this. Keep company with God and live a life of love. Observe how Christ loved us. His love was not cautious but extravagant. He didn't love in order to get something from us, to, but to give everything of himself to us. Love like that. Another older commentator with a wonderful name, Watchman Nee, has summarized Ephesians in three words which I hope helps you today as well as I conclude. Sit, walk, stand. In Ephesians chapter 1 to 3, we're reminded that we are seated in the heavenly places with Christ. In Ephesians 4 and 5, we are to walk worthy of our calling of Jesus. Wear the right uniform. And in Ephesians 6, that we'll come to in a few weeks, we're called to stand against the attacks of the devil. And the order is really important. Don't you sit before you walk? 
First, we need to learn our true and glorious position in Christ. We need to be seated and almost look around us in the heavenly places, chapters 1 to 3, and see how wonderful our Savior is and all the glory of His grace towards us. We are adopted and raised and forgiven and loved and we inherit everything with Christ in His cosmos. And then we learn how to walk together in this life in the company of others, frustrating it all as others might be, as fellow schoolmates in the class of Christ. We learn together. All our problems in the Christian life stem from a failure to remember that we're already seated with Him in Christ. And when we walk before we have sat, we will stumble. We wrongly imagine that our new faith with Jesus consists of performing certain tasks or going a certain way, but we need reminded we already have the new uniform. We're already Christ's, enrolled in his school, wearing his grace, robed in his righteousness. Jesus is everything we shall ever need. Let me pray. Father, as we are enrolled in the school of Christ and are fitted for that uniform of righteousness, guard our hearts, put a seal over our mouths, enable us to be those who, when we speak, only do so creatively and building others up that whatever we say might be words that keep promises and help preserve relationship. And Lord, we pray that the words that we use would be words that heal and offer salvation. Father, when we are tempted to boom or bubble in our anger, may we remember that Christ has already dealt with our sin in his own body on that tree. Lord, teach us to be kind and compassionate to one another in this school of Christ, knowing that in him we have everything we ever needed. Amen.